Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 38. Today we will be reading book 10, chapters 10 through 15 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast, Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So St. Augustine is going to continue with his philosophical musings, And he's going to move through sense, which we heard in the last episode, to intelligence or to intellect. He's going to use the words like mind and memory. And he's going to meditate on the origins of conceptual thought. Remember that we're rising up the ladder to the consideration of God. And St. Augustine, I mean, is a master thinker. He is just very intelligent. um, And he's also a master teacher. So he's very good at instructing us in the things that he knows or helping us to discover the things that he knows by a kind of sharing in the divine light. So yeah, we might not comprehend it all. Certainly I didn't, but that's okay because we can learn something from him because he's a good teacher and because he's holy and because, well, we're already like 37 days into this. So may as well keep going. All right, let's get started. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 10. But now when I hear that there are three kinds of questions, does the thing exist, what is it, and what kind of thing is it, I do indeed hold images of the sounds from which these words are composed, and I also know that those sounds pass noisily through the air, but no longer exist. However, the very things that are signified by these sounds are not something I have ever reached with any bodily sense, nor have I ever discerned them in any other way but through my mind. Yet I have laid up in my memory not their images, but those questions themselves. If anyone can tell me how they entered me, tell me, for I have passed through all the sensory canals of my flesh and cannot find one through which they entered. The eyes say, if those images are colored, we reported on them. The ears tell me, if they make sound, we have given knowledge of them. The nostrils say, if they smell, then they have passed through us. And taste says, do not ask me unless they have some sort of flavor. And touch, if it has no dimensions, then I did not handle it. And if I did not handle it, then I have given no notice of it. From where and how did these things enter into my memory? I do not know how. For when I learned them, I did not give credit to another man's mind, but rather recognized them in mine, and seeing that they were true, I commended them to it, laying them up, as it were, so that I might bring them forth whenever I so willed. Thus, they were there even before I learned them, but they were not in my memory. Where then were they? 
Or why, when they were spoken, did I accept them and say, so it is, it is true, unless they were already in memory, though so distant and so buried, as it were, in deeper recesses, that if another person's suggestion had not drawn them forth, I perhaps may never have been able to conceive of them. Chapter 11. Thus we find that to learn these things that we do not imbibe in the form of images from the senses, but rather perceive within ourselves as they are by themselves without images, is nothing other than to gather together as it were by reflection, and to arrange by taking heed of those things that memory had contained before at random and unarranged, now taking them up in hand within that same memory where they had previously laid unknown, scattered, and neglected, so that now they will readily spring to the mind of him who is familiar with them. And how many things of this sort are now in my memory, having thus been discovered and, as I said, placed, as it were, ready at hand, all of which we are said to have learned or to have come to know. If I were to cease for even a moment to call them to mind, they would again be so buried and slip back into the deeper recesses of memory that they must again be brought out of there as though they were new, for they have no other abode. Rather, they must be drawn together again so that they might be known. That is, they must be, as it were, gathered together from their state of dispersion. Such is the source of the term cogitation, for the word cogere, to collect, and cogitare, to recollect, have the same relation as agere, to do, and agitare, to pursue, and facere, to make, and factitare, to practice, or do frequently. However, the mind has made this word, cogitation, its own, so that we properly say that something is cogitated or thought upon when it is collected precisely by being recollected, that is, by being brought together in the mind. Chapter 12. Memory also contains the reasons and countless laws of numbers and dimensions, none of which have been impressed upon it by any bodily sense, because they have no color, nor sound, nor taste, nor smell, nor tactile feeling. I have heard the sound of the words that enable us to discuss such things, but such sounds are different from the realities thereby signified. For such sounds differ in Greek and in Latin, but the realities in question are neither Greek nor Latin nor any other language. I have looked upon the lines drawn by architects, some sketched very finely like a spider's thin thread, but the mathematical lines themselves are not the same as these drawings, for the lines themselves are not images of those lines that I can see with my bodily eyes. Whoever conceives such things without using any kind of bodily perception recognizes them within himself. So too have I perceived the numbers that we use in numbering all that we experience with our bodily senses. But those numbers we use for numbering are different from the things we number, and such numbers are not images of the things, though they do indeed have being. Let not the man who does not perceive them laugh at me for saying these things, and when he laughs, I will pity him. Chapter 13. I remember all these things as well as how I learned them, and I have heard and likewise remember many things that were raised as objections very falsely against them, and, although they are false, I do not falsely remember them. I also remember that I have discerned between those truths and the falsehoods that have been raised as objections against them, and I perceive that it is different to discern in this way today, and to remember that I have frequently discerned in this way when I often thought about such matters. Therefore, I both remember that I have often understood these things, and what I now discern and understand I lay up in my memory so that I may later remember that I now understand it. Thus, I remember that I have remembered. For if I hereafter call into remembrance the fact that I now am able to remember these things, I shall then call it into remembrance by the force of memory. Chapter 14. The same memory also contains affections of the mind, not in the same way that my mind itself contains them when it feels them, but in a much different manner, according to a power of its own. 
For without rejoicing, I remember that I have felt joy, and without sorrow do I recollect my past sorrow. And I now review past feelings of fear without today experiencing them, and I call to mind some past desire without feeling desire now. Sometimes, by contrast, with joy, I remember some past sorrow, and with sorrow look back on a past joy. This is not surprising as regards the body, for the mind is one thing and the body another. If, therefore, I joyfully remember some past bodily pain, this is not so surprising. Now, this memory itself is mind, for when we say that something must be kept in memory, we remark, see that you keep it in mind, and when we forget it, we say, I cannot call it to mind, and it slipped from my mind, calling the memory itself mind. Thus, how is it that when I joyfully remember past sorrow, the mind feels joy while the memory contains sorrow? How is it that the mind is filled with joy through the joyfulness that is in it, whereas memory does not feel sad when it contains a sad recollection? Who will say so? The memory is then, as it were, the mind's stomach, and joy and sadness are like sweet and bitter food. When they are committed to memory, they, so to speak, pass into the stomach where they are stored, though not tasted. It would be ridiculous to imagine that these are alike, though they are not completely dissimilar. But behold, I can draw from my memory the fact that there are four ways the mind is troubled, by desire, joy, fear, and sorrow. Then I can turn to discuss them, dividing each into its subordinate species, and by defining it, I can draw from my memory what I need to say. And yet, I am not disturbed by any of these disturbances when I call them to mind by remembering them. Indeed, even before I recall them and bring them back, they were there, able to be brought forward by recollection. Perhaps then, just as grass is brought up out of the stomach when the cud is chewed, so too by recollection these things are brought out of memory. But why, in the midst of such disputation, do we not taste in the mouth of our musing the sweetness of joy or the bitterness of sorrow? Is this where the metaphor shows its dissimilarity because the two cases are not alike in all respects? For who would willingly speak of it if every time we happen to speak about grief or fear, we would be forced to feel sad or fearful? And yet, we could not speak of them if we did not find in our memory not only the sounds of the names through the images that have been impressed on our bodily senses, but also the notions of the very things themselves, which we never received by any bodily avenue, but which, instead, the mind, perceiving the experience of its own passions, committed to memory, or memory by itself retained, although they had not been committed to it. Chapter 15 but who can readily say whether or not this is by means of images? Thus, I speak about a stone or the sun, and although the things themselves are not present to my senses, their images are present to my memory. I speak about a bodily pain, yet it is not present to me when I have no aches. However, unless its image were present in my memory, I would not know what to say about it, nor how to discuss the distinction between pain and pleasure. I can speak about bodily health while I am also of sound body, thus having the very thing under discussion present to me. And yet, if its image were not also present in my memory, I could by no means recall what the sound of these words should signify. And the sick man would not recognize what is being spoken of when talking about health unless the same image were retained in memory, though the thing itself were absent from the body. I name the numbers by which we count, and it is not their image, but they themselves that are present in my memory. I name the image of the sun, and that image is present in my memory. For I recall not the image of its image, but the image itself. The latter is what is readily called to mind. I name memory, and I recognize what I name. And where do I recognize it, if not in memory itself? Is memory also present to itself by its image, and not by itself? Okay. So, in the last episode, St. Augustine looked for God in the world, and they said, we are not he, he made us. Look beyond, look further. And then he looked for God in the body, uh, specifically in the senses and in the sense memory, but he found them to be limited. 
or he found them to kind of be circumscribed within their kind of sphere of the sensible. So now he's looking for God in the soul and especially in mind and memory. And he kind of shows his hand here very briefly at the beginning of this section uh, that he's he's adopting a scientific approach. Like he's not just rootling around in the dark like a kind of lost drunk badger. That is a terrible image, but it felt right because when I said rootle, I was committed to badgers. But this is like a scientific approach here. So he when he describes the questions that are informing his inquiry, they're questions that it would have been, you know, kind of lined out for him by Aristotle who is a master teacher and a master thinker. So he's going to go from like words to concepts or notions, basically like ideas, and to things. And so he's working with each of those so that he can establish our connection with reality or help to kind of understand our connection with reality and determine where God is to be found therein. So already here, he describes at the outset the kind of difference between receiving something sensibly and then receiving something intelligibly because he's asking like how did i come to know you like through what sense did you come like did you come through the nostrils did you come through the ears did i did i ingest you and he knows that that's not the case that something has to have arrived in the memory by different means and i think this is just i mean when we when we meditate upon it or when we you know reflect on this fact that we can come to know things in themselves it's pretty astonishing so um, Father Jacob Bertrand, you know, like we had these philosophy courses together and these theology courses together at the Dominican House of Studies, and we spent a lot of time on the marvel that is our capacity to know. I don't know. You have particular ways in which you you kind of lead others in the knowledge of these things? Yes. <laughs> as as you were describing, and as St. Augustine has been describing in, in the chapters that just preceded that we covered in yesterday's episode, we come to know first or at least most immediately through what we sense through a sort of encounter with the physical, but it's not the only way that we come to know. Um, we can also use our reason or things can be impressed into our mind, um, given to us to know, but we can also take, you know, some kind of combination of, of those things where we, where we come to know something through an encounter, but also through a sort of intellectual engagement. So the human mind isn't limited to just knowing through the light of reason, through having a sort of physical sensible through the senses encounter with something, but also because our Lord wants us to know him through, we could talk about the light of faith, even, you know, how things are, are given to us, revealed to us. So I think the the heaviness or the, not the heaviness, but yeah, as we're reading through this, we kind of, the kind of bogged down nature of this, isn't that Augustine is, is trying to kind of like beat us to death with all these different possibilities and ways of knowing, but it is really kind of opening up the reality of like the vastness and the sort of incredible capability of the human mind to engage and, and receive and its sort of coming to know. And as he's moving us towards God and the question of how do we know God, it's not just a sort of simple answer, you know? So we see the complexity even in St. Augustine's working it out. All right. So he takes a little, I don't know what you would call it, deviation, but it seems like it's part of the discourse. So he proceeds through this step, namely, how, how are things present in our memory or how do things come to be in our memory? And in the background, there's this long and complicated philosophical debate because Plato seems to suggest that our souls would have had access to the intelligible notions previously to being embodied. And then when we are embodied, we kind of forget them. And then it takes us some time to recollect them when we are in the presence of the, the things themselves, which inspire the thoughts. And then Aristotle's like, no, doesn't seem right. I mean, we encounter things, and then on the basis of those encounters, we kind of abstract or we're able to distill from our experience something 
kind of general, something conceptual, because that's just precisely how our minds work. And so, you know, he's indebted to both of these thinkers, but he uses a kind of approachable language here where he's describing our efforts to kind of gather and arrange what it is that we know or to to place demands upon our memory so that way we can draw on all the stores of our access to reality and uh, deploy it in the way that's best. So again, another interesting philosophical debate in the background, but St. Augustine is able to give it a kind of pastoral application because, you know, like the question here of teaching or of learning more broadly is a very interesting one. And St. Augustine would have written another treatise about it uh, called The Teacher, but it's something that's worth thinking about in our own case because, you know, how do we come to know things or even just more broadly, how do we come to grow? Like, how do we come to deepen in our conversion? Is it something that's accidental? Is it something that like really works on us when we're asleep and when we're awake, we're just posing obstacles to it? Um, and the way that he describes it is kind of like aided discovery. It's like somebody who's been there uh, is able to walk us through the different steps so that we, in making those steps, might feel it in our bodies or might feel it in our minds. And through the exercise, right, we'll kind of see how, how things line up or how things are articulated, which I think is a very beautiful vision because it gives us a paradigm for our own conversion. Because not only does the Christian witness go before us, like in the case of Augustine, we've already heard about those stories that moved him very much in, in book eight, but also, you know, God goes before us because God holds all things together in himself. He himself is the truth truth uh, in whom we hope to be instructed. So I don't know if this this corresponds to your own experience, Father Jacob Burchin, or if there are particular stories or events that that bring it out more more clearly. I think the thing that kind of stands out is is and I'm sure we've, you know, I have had and you and those of you listening have had the experience of having like a good teacher. Somebody knows how to communicate or the truth or what's being taught. And I, I a few stand out in mind, especially, you know, through my I don't know. Middle school is kind of a blur, but there are a couple from high school and a couple from college and a couple from our time at the House of Studies in D.C. that stand out as as good communicators of, of the truth. And I don't think that that's just a sort of, I mean, it's certainly a pedagogical thing of how it's communicated, but it also, part of that pedagogy of teaching comes from understanding the audience in the sense of like, well, how is it that we learn? How is it that we engage? And what is the truth that we're attempting to communicate? And and it's it's bigger than just sort of forcing or foisting facts on people. And that's the case when we learn about the faith and when we learn about God. You know, God is the ultimate pedagogue. He's the ultimate teacher. And I think that we have to hold in some way that that somebody who is trying to communicate God in whatever form, whether it's in like the hard sciences or philosophy, theology, that that comes, that comes off better. It's, it works better when there's also a pursuit of God in that person's life himself. Um, so we see this in Augustine that, you know, his, his desire and knowledge for truth kind of spills forth into his proclaiming the truth. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to sort of like over-spiritualize that reality, but I think that it's part and parcel of knowing who we are, knowing how we learn, knowing what the truth is, and presenting that in a way that is attractive and good. And Augustine seems to have a desire and a, a capability of doing that. So yeah, it's particular teachers pop into mind immediately in, in, in considering these chapters. Yeah. And um, as St. Augustine kind of wraps up these chapters, or as he progresses through these chapters, he'll note other interesting things, like the fact that we can have complex recollections, like distinguishing between what's true and what's false, or that we can have a memory of a memory, or that we can have memories of passions or emotions without experiencing the passions or emotions in the way that we did 
in the the first instance, you know, or in the first encounter. And it's cool because he's kind of setting up an analogy whereby we as human beings can assume a kind of intellectual distance from our immediate experience. And I think that this is a distance that we want to assume as as Christians, not so that we can like look down on our experience and judge ourselves, but so that we don't get immersed in or kind of mired in our own experience. Because I think that, you know, like, who is it true of that he gets immersed in or mired in his experience? Well, the beasts, right? So by virtue of the fact that we have a mind, we're able to, yeah, make judgments. We're able to assume this kind of critical distance. We're able to interpret our lives. So we're not just, you know, here to live our lives. We're also here to interpret our lives. And in fact, interpreting our lives is part of the living of them because we can try to address those points in our lives where God is interposing more powerfully, or we can try to acknowledge those times in our lives where we relied overly much on ourselves or dot, dot, dot. There are different ways in which we can do this, but it's ultimately so as to break us open to deeper communion, to deeper union with God. So yeah, further thoughts on this particular aspect of our human capability, which sets us apart from the beasts? The one sort of thing that stands out is, again, it, it, we've been talking about this throughout, but the question of what are we made for? You know, that we began the confessions. Well, St. Augustine, I didn't begin the confession. St. Augustine began the confessions with this desire to know God and, and what he's made for. And it just reaffirms again that we as, as men and women are created in the image, to the image of God, and have God has bestowed us with this gift and this ability to know Him. That's different than the animals. Animals participate in creation, but they don't. They don't come to know God. So there's this. I think a reliance on the sort of great dignity of the human person. When I say reliance, I mean Saint Augustine, like trust that that's the case, and we can trust too, and not as a sense of like lording it over creation, but as a way to like fulfill our end as a way to recognize like, this is what I'm made for. I can look at the world around me. I can come to know things. I can know that God is not in this world. And I can learn and know that my mind is made to know the things of this world, but ultimately those point to the creator and the creator has revealed himself and desires me to be in relationship and, and know him and, and worship him. And this is a privilege of our being human beings, of being created in his image. And we ought to capitalize on it, not in a that might sound a bit, I don't know, rough around the edges to capitalize on it, but to, to use it and to lean into it and to live it, I guess, is a better way to say it. Yeah. So it's kind of an invitation for us, or really, uh, it's a clarion call. You know, listener, remember your dignity, that you are created to the image and likeness of God, that you have a mind with which to know and a heart with which to love, and in training that mind and heart upon the Most High God, you will be drawn up, you know, further up and further in to things beyond this present world, to things beyond this present experience, which inform it, right? Which are, in a certain sense, the key to interpreting it and living it well, because we don't want to escape it, right? We want to pass through it. We want to pass through it without being sullied by it or stained by it, but transformed in our encounter with the Lord and his grace, such that we can bring along with us those whom we meet. So yeah, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>